Will you be High Master of the Galaxy? Well, let's find out with Master of Orion this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 35 of the Upper Memory Block Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Joe, back with you once again to talk about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. So since last time we talked, I know it's been uh, it's been a little while. The summer's been super busy for me. Uh, last weekend, uh, the wife and I decided that uh, kind of semi at the last minute to take a little trip to one of our favorite places in the world, Mont Tremblant, Quebec, and... Uh, you know, where we continue to do a bit more uh, uh, hiking and, and stuff that uh, that we like to do out to, out in the woods. The week before that, I went camping. So, you know, it's been a busy couple of weeks. Fun stuff. You know, work's been busy, but uh, we've been doing a lot of fun stuff, too. We did a really cool thing called the uh, the Via Ferrata in, uh, in Mont Tremblant. It's kind of like a rock climbing light version. Like you're, you're crossing a rock face, climbing a rock face, but uh, it's kind of a predetermined path. There's handholds and and stuff kind of drilled into the rock and you're you're hooked in and all that because frankly i am not a professional or even amateur mountain climber so uh you know that was cool it was a cool physical challenge it was actually more of a psychological challenge than than anything kind of teaching you to be in the moment and not get nervous about uh where you're going and and we were about 200 meters uh off the ground which is fairly high if uh if you know you're uh you're not a metric person i'm not sure what that is in feet but it's fairly high um and yeah, we had a, a real, real good time. Uh, the weather was was so-so and all that, but uh, weather's fine now, though it looks like it may rain outside. But enough about that. Uh, let's get directly into the news because we got a lot of stuff to say this week. So in the news, back at the beginning of August, Bethesda hosted QuakeCon and, uh, and quite a bit of news came out of there. Uh, of relevance to us, it appears that Bethesda will be releasing an all-inclusive anthology of every Elder Scrolls game ever made, from Elder Scrolls Arena way back when, the first Elder Scrolls game, all the way up to Skyrim, and not just Skyrim, the main game, but even including the latest uh, Dragonborn DLC content. Uh, You know, it looks like this is going to be a great collectible item, uh, it's going to have really cool art. Uh, there's some, I think, I believe there's complete maps of uh, of all the different uh, lands, including, like I said, right from uh, Arena to Morrowind to uh, Drid Daggerfall, all the way up to Skyrim. Um, it's going to retail, according to Bethesda, for $79.99. So uh, that looks like something cool. I know a lot of us already own all the Elder Scrolls game. Frankly, I think I only own... Uh, oblivion and uh, and skyrim so you know i may pick this up for uh for the 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 first couple of games i know morrowind i played a little bit but uh i know it's on my steam wish list so i've been uh meaning to go back through that game and and all that so very very cool now in other uh potentially bigger quake con but really more just id related news um last week i believe on august 7th Something like that, John Carmack, who, as we know from the Wolfenstein 3D episode and the Doom episode and a whole bunch of other stuff, uh, 
you know, John Carmack, the technical genius, the technical mastermind, I guess we could even say behind uh, all of its game engines, technology and other kind of technical innovations will be joining Oculus VR, uh, the company behind the Oculus Rift, a virtual reality uh, headset kind of contraption uh, contraption that uh, that's been running around on the Internet. Uh, he's been a huge proponent of, uh, of the project from its early days, and uh, he has agreed to join Oculus VR as the Chief Technology Officer, or CTO. Uh, initially, everyone was kind of freaking out a little bit because rumors were circulating that uh, because of this, he was leaving id Software. But uh, those rumors were later confirmed to be false. Uh, he made it very clear, though, that via Twitter that uh, he'd be spending the bulk of his time working with the Oculus Rift guys and uh, his other commitments, including id, and uh, there's one other organization that uh, that he's a, an important member of, that uh, those two other two commitments would be kind of his second and third priorities. So this is great news for the Rift and uh, potentially bad news for uh, for id Software and their next id Tech 7 or something like that, whatever their next engine is going to be called. So um, yeah, I guess we'll see. I'm not sure how much Carmack has been... Uh, contributing to uh to id in, in the programming space i suspect it's still a decent amount because that seems like the kind of guy that he is but uh yeah we'll we'll see where that goes next uh it may have been last show it's it's been three weeks so um i have trouble remembering frankly but uh i i mentioned a film project called heroes a history of sierra online well sadly heroes did not fund uh, it made only about $28,000 of its $125,000 goal. All is not lost, however, despite the failed Kickstarter campaign. Uh, backers have been told that the film will still be made, but uh, a different approach is going to be made for uh, for funding. They're going to have to figure out what they're going to do. So the journey continues. I'll post that uh, that update in the show notes for those who are interested. Finally, in a little bit more sad Kickstarter news precinct. Uh, Police Quest creator Jim Walls' new project recently canceled its Kickstarter uh, before it ended as it was pretty much not on track to reach its goal. Again, they are not giving up. They've moved over to a, a more open and tiered funding model. Uh, instead of gathering half a million dollars to make a full game like they originally intended, they are now trying to raise a mere $25,000 to get a prototype built. Uh, with a prototype, they can then shop the game around or even launch another Kickstarter with something a little more concrete to show, uh, as usual, I will keep you all in the loop as to how that new approach works out. So before we get going into the main topic, we have uh, three little email messages from some listeners. So first, a note from Brian via the uh, Facebook group. He writes, Your podcast is making me lazy. I used to do my own research about old games I'd find myself reminiscing about. Now I just think, Joe will do a show on it. But uh, sometimes you're a tease. You got me thinking about Commander Keen back on the Wolf 3D cast, and then you mentioned Elder Scroll Arena back in January. Don't leave me hanging. In all seriousness, your podcast is one of the best out there. A lot of people have criticized other great single host retro podcasts like Retrocity and The Retroist for sounding too much like NPR, but they're very focused without pointless rambling between all the hosts. Uh, your focus keeps my attention, even when covering genres I have no interest in. I do have to laugh every once in a while when you talk like Classic Kirk, the example he gives, uh, that makes this game 
really satisfying. Uh, I love it. Thanks for all your work. Well, thank you, Brian. Uh, <laughs> I know uh, I do mention a lot of other games that, uh, you know, sometimes in passing in other shows or sometimes games I haven't yet covered are part of the history of games I am covering and all that. But, you know, just uh, realize that, you know, I, I will most definitely cover cover all those games. You know, after I did the Wolf 3D episode, I said, oh yeah, I should really do Commander Keen. And then then I thought to do Doom. And then again, I kind of mentioned Commander Keen. So if you kind of string all the id-based shows together, you'll kind of get the history of Commander Keen, but I will most certainly uh, do a focused episode on Commander Keen. And, you know, same for uh, for Elder Scrolls. Elder Scrolls is, is kind of like these very epic... I'm a little nervous to do these very big epic RPG series like Elder Scrolls and like Ultima just because there's so much content that, uh, you know, I'm not sure how I'm going to boil it all down or maybe I'll do it in a couple of parts or something like that. But, uh, you know, rest assured that uh, that those games will be covered. So thank you for that. I'm glad you're enjoying the show. And let's get on to the next one. So next we have a note from new listener Rob who dropped me an email. He writes... Hey man, I just wanted to send you a quick Bravo Zulu on your podcast from one goodger to another. I heard about it from the game podcast thread on the gamers on gamerswithjobs.com and listened to your most recent episode on Free Space. I've never played Free Space myself as uh, space combat games aren't really my thing, but I found the episode extremely interesting anyway, especially the development history. I will look forward to listening to some of the older shows and have subscribed to get the new stuff as well. Nice work, Rob. Well, thank you, Rob. And and you bring up a really something that I actually I've been meaning to mention, and that is gamerswithjobs.com. Uh, I came across Gamers with Jobs um, actually via my uh, my logs on my website because I saw some people uh, coming to umbcast.com from Gamers with Jobs. So I kind of poked over there, and that is uh, they have a very, very great community over at, uh, at Gamers with Jobs, a very vibrant community, a very uh, friendly community, which, which I have joined. And... Uh, you know, I'm I'm enjoying meeting all the people over at the Gamers with Jobs forums. Uh, the guys there do a really really great podcast called the Gamers with Jobs Conference Call, which comes out every I think they record on Saturdays and it comes out on Tuesday or Wednesday of every week. I believe it's Wednesday, where you know they get into really really great conversations about gaming and kind of about very interesting focused topics. I think one of the more interesting ones that I was interested in lately was when they talked about you know why we love playing games that simulate mundane things like driving a truck in your truck simulator or farming or things like that. So really, really great podcast. If you haven't heard of it, if uh, you haven't listened to it, I, I strongly recommend it. If you're, uh, if you're into, uh, intelligent, well-reasoned, uh, discussions about the gaming industry and gaming psychology and, and, everything about games in general. So hey, everyone over at Games With Jobs, uh, really enjoying being there. And thank you, Rob, for that message. And finally, let's listen to a voicemail from Francisco. Here we go. Hi, Joe. This is Francisco Ruiz from Portland, Oregon. Uh, I want to say this audio feedback comes in three parts, so I will do my best to keep things concise. First off, thank you so much for the free space episode. Really enjoyed it. I mean, I enjoy most of your episodes, but uh, the, I had never heard of this game, and I grew up around the time period where I thought I would have, so definitely sounds like an early EVE Online type of game, and especially from the screenshots on GOG. Uh, but thank you for covering it, and sounds like a really fun one to go and visit. Uh, second point, 
want to say, please, 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 please do a Homeworld episode. I'm pretty sure it's pre-XP. I played on my Windows 98 machine. Uh, and you doing the Free Space episode totally made me think of Homeworld and playing through Homeworld. And that is just a game I absolutely loved. So I, I'm. it sounds like you're doing a lot of space-type uh, games. So I understand if you want to take the break after Masters of Orion. But please do a Homeworld episode. Please. Please. Uh, <laughs> my third, my uh, third point is I just wanted to thank you for doing the podcast. I love the Upper Memory Block podcast. Uh, thank you for running my Retro Rewind podcast promo. That's really awesome of you. And uh, just thank you for starting this cool podcast. Let me say thank you some more. <laughs> All right. Well, have a good one. Bye. Well, I will say thank you right back, uh, Francisco. That's you know, uh, it's interesting. I, I've actually gotten quite a bit of feedback about uh, about the free space episode where where people actually hadn't heard had not heard of uh, of the game and you know this is kind of the first time they went through it and they're like i can't believe i missed this i love space sims and you know i played a lot of them and and i'd never heard of free space and, and i'm not sure why that is i mean i i also frankly did did not play free space and i think for me and i may have mentioned this in the show uh, for me it may have been just because of that whole controversy with thing with with uh with the naming and and the fact that it uh it was called initially descent free space so i kind of just assumed it was another descent game i think i had played descent one a little bit and at that time i may have been a little burnt out on kind of first person shootery kind of game so i just assumed oh free space is another descent game i played descent i enjoyed it a little and i i had my fill of it and I think that might have been the reason that that I stayed away. But, uh, you know, that's great. And that is the point of of the show. Exactly that. So, you know, if there's games that, that you missed, games you hadn't heard about, that, uh, you know, you'll go through and find them. And frankly, I, I do highly recommend, as I did, highly recommend Free Space and especially Free Space 2. Please, you know, go to GOG, spend the the, the five bucks or whatever it is to, uh, to play it because it, they, the Free Space series does really deserve to to be played. With regard to Homeworld, I, I think, yes, it is. I think it came out in 99. So, yeah, it's it's definitely in there. So uh, I added it to the list. Yeah, I'm definitely, uh, I guess I've done two space-type games in a row. So uh, we'll we'll mix it up a little. But it is it, it is in there. And, uh, and I will most definitely one day speak about Homeworld. So thank you so much, Francisco. Thanks to everyone who emailed in. And let's get on with it. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for Overview. All right, on to our main topic for the week, the Master of Orion series. Uh, the Master of Orion games were developed by a company called Simtex and published by Microprose. Uh, the first game actually released in the series, so the actual first game in this series, which we, you know, I'll, I'll talk about what exactly I mean by that later. Uh, the first game was known simply as Master of Orion, and it released in the year 1993. So genre time. At a very high level, Master of Orion is a turn-based strategy kind of empire-building game. In these games, you take on the role of a leader of an empire. Uh, your goal is to build up your empire and eventually dominate the map or the world or the galaxy or whatever kind of uh, 
enclosure of, of, of area of influence uh, the game provides you. But that's kind of the general rule, the general goal, the general genre. More specifically, though, Master of Orion is a 4X turn-based strategy game. So what does this mean exactly? Well, frankly, I wasn't entirely sure until I looked it up for this podcast. I mean, I could name you some 4X games such as Civilization and, of course, Master of Orion, and, and there's many others, but I could not actually tell you what the whole 4X thing actually meant. Uh, it turns out that the 4Xs in 4X stand for Explore, Expand, Exploit, and Exterminate. Uh, these have become the four specific conventions of the 4X genre. I'm going to say four a couple more times because it sounds funny in my head. So I will explain the four X's of the 4X, oh my lord, uh, genre. The first one, explore. Explore is defined by sending units out from your starting settlement and exploring the surrounding map. Expand means taking control of additional territory through establishment or capture of additional settlements or by increasing your sphere of influence through political, military, or cultural means. Exploit is exemplified by utilizing any number of natural resources that fall inside of your borders. Like other strategy games, resources can consist of any number of things ranging from mundane materials like stone or wood or wheat or water uh, to things like precious gems to any number of sci-fi gases or fantasy magic crystals or, or anything like that, depending on what kind of game you're playing. The final and perhaps most exciting X of the four X's is exterminate. Exterminate means, of course, exterminating all of your enemies. So while you're attempting to do one or more of these things at one time, your opponents are also trying to do the same thing. How you manage your empire's population, production capacity, technical research, and uh, defense determines how you stack up compared to other players or computer-controlled opponents. Uh, depending upon the implementation of the game, there may be many ways to win a 4X strategy game, though generally a win condition consists of owning the entire map or at least being the only empire left standing at the end. Whether you accomplish this via war, diplomacy, or culture is up to you. So that'll do as an overview. Let's get into specifics. You are listening to the Upper Podcast. So as we always do after the genre, let's talk about the story. Like many of the sci-fi based games we've covered on the show thus far, Master of Orion takes place in a very rich and well-developed universe. While much of this background has been developed in follow-on games and by kind of fan fiction and all that, the manual that came with Master of Orion 1 tells us it is the beginning of the 23rd century. Ten races have achieved the technological capacity to explore and colonize deep space all around the same time. Soon enough, the growth of these races overruns the capacity of their homeworld, and since they're not only now capable, but forced by circumstances to begin exploring habitable worlds, they do so and begin expanding to them. Despite these 10 races involving in isolation from each other and on the surface of things all being wildly different, they do maintain some odd similarities. Each of the races, humanity included, have legends telling of a master race that controlled the galaxy long ago. 
It said that these masters left behind a world filled with untold wonders, riches, and technology beyond any living being's wildest dreams. It wasn't just free for anyone who found it, though. Legend told of a powerful guardian protecting the world. The world was known to all races in all of their legends as Orion, and it was clearly known to all that the race who masters Orion masters the universe. So this is where we begin the game. You are the immortal emperor of your selected race. It's up to you to lead your people to galactic dominance. Okay, gameplay time. So this is where we are when we launch the game. Uh, when beginning a new game, we have a few options to think about with regard to how the game will go. Firstly, we have galaxy size. Now, galaxy size determines the number of stars in your galaxy. Now, you'd figure that playing a small galaxy with a mere 24 stars would be much easier than playing a large one with 70 stars or even a huge galaxy with 108 stars. This is not the case. The smaller the galaxy, the more competition there is for limited resources. So while a game in a small galaxy may be very quick, you'll have virtually no rev up time to build up fleets, colonize other planets, or research technology. If you're just starting off, a medium galaxy with 48 stars is a good starting point. I mean, when you get into large and huge, there are also kind of challenges there, but uh, frankly, the small galaxy is really very challenging. Secondly, we have the difficulty level. Like many games, setting a higher difficulty level makes your opponents more challenging, duh. Uh, difficulty ranges from simple to impossible, with each level increasing your opponent's rates of production, expansion, technological development, and aggressiveness. Finally, in these initial settings, you can choose the number of opponents you will be facing. You can face from one to five of them at once. Of course, the more opponents you have, the more competition there is for planets and such, so generally more opponents equals harder gameplay. You then roll over to the next screen and the most important choice you'll make in setting up your game, which race you'll be leading as its immortal emperor. As I've already mentioned, you have the choice of any of 10 available races. The game manual goes into great detail about the background and motivations of each race to save time and not bore you to tears, I'll just list them off with their distinguishing characteristics and any bonuses or nerfs they may be privy to. So in alphabetical order, because that's how they were listed in the manual, uh, they are the Alkari, who are an avian species who are superior pilots. They gain both defense and initiative bonuses on their ships. So if you want to do kind of a quick strike kind of military type uh, gameplay, Alkari are, are a really good race to choose. The Bulrathi are a fierce bear-like race. They gain a plus 25 bonus to ground attacks. This means the best way for them to capture planets is via ground forces. The Darlocks are a ruthless race of shapeshifters. They gain advantages in spying and internal security. However, they lose out on diplomacy since other races naturally mistrust them. The humans are master traders and diplomats. Human players receive 25% bonuses to trade, double the effect of diplomatic actions, and receive plus 5 to their diplomatic levels when entering treaties or agreements. We really are very friendly people, aren't we? Next, the Clacons are a large ant-like race. They are very industrious and double their industrial output when compared to other races. 
Clackons are a great starting race since their new colonies become profitable very, very quickly. The Mechlars are a cybernetic race. They gain bonuses to factories and automation. The Mershan are a cat-like race and are keen hunters. They gain bonuses to combat initiative and accuracy. Again, if you want to play aggressively, this is the other race and maybe the better race, depending on your playstyle, to choose. The Cylons, or Cylons, like P-S-I-L-O-N, not Cylons like in Battlestar Galactica, Cylons like Psionic people. They are kind of the Vulcans of Master of Orion. They're logical and unemotional. They receive huge bonuses to research. The Sacra are a reptilian race. They gain bonus to population expansion rates and can fill up new colonies very, very quickly. In fact, a good uh, strategy with them is to basically always be expanding because you want to take advantage of that population growth. Finally, the Silicoids are a race of rock beings. Again, kind of like the Horta from Star Trek. Pain! They, uh, they can colonize any type of environment without additional research, but their population grows at half rate because the human miners keep destroying their eggs. I'm sorry, no more Star Trek references. <laughs> Uh, so choosing the right race for the type of game you want to play is quite important. Playing against your race's advantages is really the best way to lose the game very quickly. So once you decide, your game begins. You choose a name for your emperor and a name for your homeworld. Then we're off to the races. You own a single planet, two small scout ships, and a single colony ship to begin with. First things first, let's begin exploring. There should be one or two stars that are within range of your starting ship's engine and fuel capacity. Range of ships is calculated as parsecs away from your closest colony. So right now, our scout ships can travel four parsecs away from our home world. Send one to each nearby star that you can. If we're lucky, there will be a colonizable planet nearby. If not, we have to start worrying about researching some tech to help us out, but a little bit more on that in a bit. Aside from exploring nearby space, we have a homeworld to manage. So clicking on our home system updates the right sidebar with the planetary management controls. Your main task in controlling your colony is to manage allocation of that colony's total production. Production is measured in billions of credits or BCs per turn. This is shown in the production field on the management screen. Under that value are five very, very important sliders. These are your production ratio bars. They control how much of your total planetary production capacity is allocated to that specific tasks. The sliders are as follows. Ship handles production of new starships for your fleets. The speed at which ships are produced is a question of how many resources are allocated to this slider, versus the total cost in BCs of your currently selected ship for construction. So if a ship costs less than uh, the number of BCs that you will produce in a single turn, multiple ships will be created. If it costs more, it will take multiple years to finish a single ship. At the beginning of the game, you're not likely to have more BCs per turn than it takes to make a ship. Next, we have DEF. DEF controls the production of planetary defenses. At the beginning of the game, all resources allocated here will go to the construction of missile bases, which defend your colonies against attacking ships and troop transports. 
As you progress through the research tree and discover new and more advanced defensive weapons, upgrading your existing missile bases becomes priority one for the resources in this slider. Once you discover planetary shields, these will also be built as a second priority after upgrading your existing missile bases. Once your shields are at full and all your missile bases are upgraded, then resources in this slider will revert back to creating additional missile bases. End handles the construction of industry. Resources allocated here support construction of factories up to your planet's current maximum allowable number of factories. Uh, at the start of the game, each colonist can support two factories, but research can bring this as high as seven factories per colonist. If you've built your maximum number of factories, resources allocated here then go into your planetary reserve, kind of a sort of rainy day fund that you can use to bolster things when you hit a snag or uh, double production on other colonies. The penalty for doing this is that your resources are cut in half when they enter the reserve. Eco, or ecology, maintains or improves the planet's environment. This is a slider you almost never want at zero. The main purpose of ecology is to clean up industrial waste generated by your factories. Uh, if you do not clean up your planet, it will have an adverse effect on your population growth. On the other hand, if you give more than what is needed here, your population growth will increase. Also, if you've researched terraforming, the resources here will then go to improving the atmosphere and soil output of the planet. So you're basically upgrading the environment of your planet. Finally, tech focuses on technological research. This is one of the most important aspects of the game. If your research levels don't keep pace with your opponents, you are sunk. Research is split into six categories, computers, construction, force fields, planetology, and propulsion. These are all fairly self-explanatory. Uh, you can research one technology per category at once and set levels of focus for each area of research. Uh, certain technologies will provide immediate benefits, such as reductions in the cost of waste cleanup or raising the maximum number of factories per colonist. Others mostly ship and colonization-related discoveries, will make a new technology available to you. However, you'll need to implement it in a new ship design in order to actually take advantage of it. Now, this is one of the cooler aspects of Master of Orion, and that is ship design. You have to stay on top of new ship designs, or your first combat encounter may be your last. You discover a new weapon? Well, you should design a new ship around it. New engine technology to increase range? Use it as soon as you can. Your fleets are managed via the fleet and ship design screens. Uh, you can maintain a total of six ship designs at any one time. So you have to decide which ones to keep and which to retire. Uh, these designs also include any colony ships you have. I mean, Because colony ships really are simply regular ship designs, usually of the uh, large or huge size, uh, that have a colony base attached to them. As you research further into the planetology tree, Upgraded colony bases provide the ability to colonize more hazardous planet types such as arid, tundra, volcanic, and toxic. No ship is actually upgradable in Master of Orion. If you want to add a new technology, you need to design a completely new ship, possibly retiring the existing type along with all the active vessels of that type. If you do so, half the value of those ships is returned to your planetary reserve, so it's not like you're just kind of throwing them away. Now, you can specify almost every aspect of a ship. The most basic aspect, as I mentioned in passing before, is its size. Ship sizes range from small to medium to large to huge. 
The size determines how many devices can be attached, how much base armor it has, and how maneuverable or unmaneuverable it is in combat. Now, based on the size and your current level of research, you have the option of specifying things like battle computers, shield levels, electronic countermeasures to counter missile attacks, armor technology, engine type. Engines not only contribute to range, speed, and maneuverability in combat, but they also provide the base level of power for all the other ship's systems. Of course, you can also specify which, if any, weapon systems are carried and how many of them are mounted. Weapons all have unique characteristics and some are effective against other ships, while others are useful for planetary assaults. Ship design is where you can really get creative and play your own way. Uh, you know, you can focus on larger fleets of smaller specialized ships or smaller fleets of large or huge cruisers that do a little bit of everything. It's really, really up to you and that's really, really kind of a cool aspect of replayability in Master of Orion. As you explore the galaxy, you'll quickly run into other races. Generally, your first contact results in a fight which you may win or you may lose. Uh, you then get the option to open diplomatic relations with your newly found neighbors. Here you have many different options in interacting with your new alien neighbors. Uh, you can propose various forms of treaties, trade agreements, offer tribute to appease a contentious race, or exchange some technology to save yourself some uh, research points. There are a few ways to expand in Master of Orion. Uh, you can colonize empty planets by sending out a colony ship. Uh, this lets you build up a colony from scratch. You can assault uh, an enemy planet from space, entering combat with any ships in orbit and bombarding the planet until its missile bases are all destroyed. Uh, you can then move in colonists from one of your existing worlds. This method can be quicker and cheaper since uh, you don't need to invest in an expensive uh, ship with a colony base. Finally, you can take an enemy planet via ground combat. Here you simply move colonists to an enemy planet via transports and uh, have them fight it out on the ground. The colonists are automatically converted into, uh, into ground troops. However, if the planet has missile bases or defense shields plus orbiting ships, uh, your assault transports can be uh, damaged or destroyed on the way down. So uh, it may be worthwhile if a planet, enemy planet is heavily fortified to uh, take down those defenses with some of your space forces before committing ground forces to the, uh, to the planet, unless you're playing the, uh, the bear race whose bonuses are all in ground combat and not so much in space combat. Now, along the way, you may, of course, discover the fabled planet of Orion. If you can defeat the Guardian in orbit... And usually the way you find the planet of Orion is uh, you enter a system and your ship is immediately destroyed. And that kind of gives you an indication that, you know what, Orion might be there. Uh, if you can defeat the Guardian, however, or eventually you go back and you do defeat the Guardian, uh, you can take control of the planet and you gain a huge bonus to research, access to some unique technologies. I believe there's like a death ray in there or something to that effect. And uh, the owner of Orion also receives very good uh, diplomatic support in the council. Uh, it really does give you a big advantage. So with all these disparate gameplay elements in mind, there's even a few like spying and things like that that I haven't mentioned. How do you actually win this game? Well, once two thirds of the planet on the map are colonized, a high council is formed. This council meets every 25 years. Uh, one, one turn equals one year. So they meet every 25 years or 25 turns to vote as to who should be declared High Master of the Galaxy. 
Now, the most straightforward method to win is militarily. Simply control more than two-thirds of the map, and you'll have enough votes to win. If you go for a diplomatic victory, you need to gather enough allies to gain, again, that two-thirds vote. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Master of Orion had fairly standard system requirements for a game of, I guess we could say, 1993, I guess, could be considered the late, early 90s. So it's not quite the mid-90s. It's not it's really the early 90s. It's the mid-late, the mid, or the, or the late, early 90s. That's confusing, but hey, let's go for it. Uh, it required a 386, 16 megahertz, 2 megs of RAM, with uh, 1,040k of extended memory, and 575k of available conventional memory. Now, I haven't talked about this in quite a while, but uh, that requirement was always the challenging one for me, the, uh, the 575K of available conventional memory. As many of us know, DOS had a conventional memory limit of 640 kilobytes. As Bill Gates said, 640K should be enough for anybody. What this meant is that only the first 640 kilobytes of memory was directly addressable by the processor and could be used directly by programs. This was called real mode. Now the problem with this was that this 640 kilobytes was usually not all available for use by whatever program was currently running. Some of it was taken up by what was known as TSR programs or terminate and stay resident programs. These were the DOS equivalent of background apps that would get loaded into memory for use either at a later time or on demand. Common TSRs were things like DOS key, which was a small program that lets you push the up arrow in DOS to recall previous commands you typed in, which you can actually go and do now in Windows 7 and Windows 8 if you drop into the command shell, you type CMD, and you go into the command prompt and you type a bunch of commands and you push the up button, the commands will, the previous commands you typed will come back. Now that is something that's automatically in there now, but you used to have to load this kind of third-party little utility to uh, to make that happen. Other utilities such as uh, were in there, such as mouse.exe, which uh, which was the Microsoft Mouse driver, which enabled your mouse to actually work. And a big one that came in with CD-ROMs was MSCDEX, or the Microsoft CD extension, which allowed your again your CD-ROM to run. So say you had a mouse driver, a CD-ROM. Uh, an antivirus program, and a few other odds and ends like DOSKey and, and maybe something for your sound card or something for your modem or blah, 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 loading up when you start it up in your in your auto-exec bat, auto-execute.batch file, uh, typing MEM or MEM into DOS would report your largest executable program size as something, say, like 520 kilobytes. Well, that meant all that memory, the, the, you know, whatever 520 minus 640 is, I'm bad at math, but, you know, you guys can yell at me later. Uh, all that memory was in use by these TSR programs, so there was only 520k left to actually run any other programs. So that would not be enough to run Master of Orion. So, so begins the dance of DOS memory optimization. 
Uh, around this time, DOS 5.0 and 6.0 had come out, which gave access to the upper memory area of DOS, which contained, as I named the show, upper memory blocks. Uh, this upper memory area consisted of the 384 kilobytes of memory that came right after the first 640K of conventional memory, which together formed the first 1 meg or 1024K of RAM. So 640 plus 384 gives us 1024K, which is 1 meg. So that first meg of RAM was available with, uh, with that upper memory. So I was pretty good at this game. Uh, I'd create a boot disk, which is basically is a 3.5-inch floppy that was formatted to be bootable. It had a custom autoexec bat and config sys file, which are the two main DOS configuration files uh, on it. Like with bootable CB CDs or bootable USB keys today, the machine would boot and run the, its operating system, at that time DOS, uh, from that disk. Now, the trick was that depending on which game you were playing, you'd have boot disks with a variety of configurations. It was it was like a puzzle. Well, TSR, what, you know, which TSRs could I live without? Did the game need a CD-ROM? No, well, okay, we don't need to load that huge memory footprint of MSCDEX. Now, we can't use our CD-ROM, but I don't care, I don't need it. Uh, do we need a mouse? Okay, well, maybe that, the mouse driver, we can load that in high memory. We can also load the DOS kernel into high memory by using the command load DOS high, comma UMB, or you could do load DOS equals high, load DOS equals UMB in two lines, but regardless of all that. So eventually, you know, I got really fancy with it and uh, I had the computer start asking me questions at boot. So, you know, the computer would boot up, it would start processing the auto exec and then question would pop up. Do I want to load the CD-ROM? Yes or no. Do I want to load the mouse driver? Yes or no. Do I want to load all? No. Do I want to load a minimal setup? Well, maybe I want to do that. You know, so you could do things, you could have it as one question. You could even create kind of these very primitive menu systems that kind of had options with preset setups. So you could do one for a full setup, you know, one for loading everything and booting into Windows 3.1 or Windows 95 or Windows 98. Uh, you could do another one that was no CD-ROM. You could do another one that was nothing, just mouse driver. So, you know, you could have all these different, all these different options. Now, eventually, a lot of these extensions and utilities like MSCDX and the mouse drivers and, and all that stuff added the ability to load themselves into extended memory, which, uh, which was the memory above the first megabyte. But right at the start, you really had to play this game to get things loaded in such a way so you had enough conventional memory to load the game you wanted to play. So 575k for Master of Orion wasn't that bad. I always remember, and I think I even mentioned this in the Aces of the Pacific episode, Aces of the Pacific needed something like 610 or 620k, which was a huge challenge. I remember I didn't, you know, I didn't really need a mouse for Aces of the Pacific. You could get through the menus using the uh, using the the keyboard. So I kind of for I, I decided against loading a mouse driver. But uh, you know, a bit later on, I remember finding a super small mouse driver that was only two kilobytes big, and uh, so I loaded that, <laughs> which uh, which allowed me to save a few k of of high memory. Ooh, <laughs> sorry, I went off on a little bit of a tangent there with the with the memory stuff. But that was such a huge part of gaming at this time. You know, I used to sit there for hours, like literally hours, and and just fiddle and say if I put this in high memory and that in low memory and. You know, this is 10K and that's 6K and that's 3K. So if I take the 6K thing and put that in low memory and take the 3K thing and put it in high memory, then, you know, I can fill up that 384 because that was the goal to fill up as much as that of that 384K of RAM as you could to leave the 640 free. 
and you know, later on in DOS 6, MemMaker came along, which kind of automated that process a little bit, but it didn't do as good a job as I did. Anyways, aside from the memory stuff, which I'll shut up about now, uh, the game needed 14 megs of hard drive space, a single speed CD-ROM, DOS 3.3 or higher, though you couldn't play with the upper memory stuff in DOS 3.3, and uh, it sported 320 by two, 320, 320 by 240, 320 by 200, 320, the VGA resolution. Sorry, I got all, I got all off. I got all discombobulated on my memory talk. VGA graphics at 256 colors. Uh, the game's music, which you're hearing, was composed by David Govitt. He lives in Austin, Texas, and at the time was working with George Sanger, aka the Fat Man of Team Fat. On Team Fat, he worked on games like the NES version of Maniac Mansion, Wing Commander, Ultima Underworld, Star Trek 25th Anniversary, which I promise I will cover, and more. Uh, Govett is credited for the game music as a solo performer, so he was kind of the main producer, or the main composer, but the producer was credited as uh, as the fat man, a.k.a. Mr. George Sanger. The music is is very appropriate, at times it's quirky, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a bit of fun. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, dev story time. Master of Orion was the brainchild of Steve Barcia. I believe it's Barcia, but that's what I'm going to say for the rest of the episode. So if I got it wrong, someone let me know. Barcia attended Louisiana Tech, where he earned himself a, bast- ba- a bachelor's. Wow, I can't talk. I guess the gym just caught up to me. Sorry, guys. <laughs> he earned himself a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical and Electrical Engineering. After school, he got a normal, dull engineering job building CAD products and analyzing uh, fire sprinkler systems and, and you know very dull things like that. On the side, he and some compatriots formed Simtech Software, where they began development on a game that they were calling Star Lords. So the initial idea for Star-Lords was simply building cool ships. The combination of technologies, how they work together, the trade-offs made in researching one technology over another, and combining the ones you did choose were the basis for the entire game. The exploration, empire building, diplomacy, and management aspects of Star-Lords came later on in in support of, uh, of the ship design functions. Star-Lords had all the basic concepts and game mechanics that we would see in Master of Orion. The game had fewer races, only PC speaker sounds. I believe it may have had 16-color graphics, but at the very least it had much more, much cruder graphics, and was basically a very unpolished pitch version of the game that Barcia was using to, to kind of show publishers and say, you know, this is the game I made. Uh, I'd like a bit of money and some time to make it a little better, but... You know, we think that uh, that we could do something with this. In fact, the in, in the intro to Star Lords, the game actually says, "Simtech Software and your company present Star Lords." So Barcia, Barcia shopped the game around a little bit, and uh, eventually got into a meeting with Microprose and Computer Gaming World journalist Alan Emmerich. Now, Microprose liked the prototype, but definitely thought that it was quite rough. Barcia was given five months and some microprose resources to polish gameplay and interface, you know, clean up the art, layer in music, and increase the scale of the game. Emmerich and his associate Tom Hughes helped Barcia refine the design. 
In fact, they are they are thanked in in the game's credits. Aside from the graphics and sound, Master of Orion boasted a much more complex and trade and diplomacy system, uh, directed research, safeguards to stop players from building more factories than a planet can support, and the concept of colony bases to inhabit empty worlds versus simply sending off transports. Uh, Star Lords did have a table that players could consult to learn about relations between computer-controlled opponents, and uh, you know that feature was not implemented in the release version of Master of Orion. It was it was cut. Now, Barcia states that they spent quite a bit of time expanding the game's races and, uh, and tweaking them so that their behavior would match the race's temperament. That's actually something I didn't mention. When you're playing a race, obviously you're the leader, but uh, you can act any way you want. But when uh, the races are computer controlled, their emperors have kind of, or their leaders, emperors, whatever you want to call them, have kind of default um behaviors like some of them are more aggressive some of them are less some of them will be a little more underhanded some of them will be upfront. some of them will be honest some of them will want to trade some of them won't kind of a thing and and you know barcia says that they spent quite a bit of time tweaking that behavior so that a race's reactions in combat in diplomatic circles in trade and all those kinds of things were really noticeably different to the player he really did want each race to play very differently to be unique and, uh, and really to be quite special in and of itself. So with all this work over five months of, of tweaking the game and, and completing it and doing what had to be done, uh, the game released in September of 1993, and it blew reviewers away. Emmerich himself wrote the review for Computer Gaming World and described it as the best galactic conquest can offer. Now, being that he was involved in the, uh, in the development, he may have been a little bit biased, but something else came out of that review Uh, it was in this review that he described the gameplay as 4x by which he meant explore expand exploit and exterminate as i as i already talked about it was in this review that the term 4x strategy was coined it soon came into common usage in the gaming space and was retroactively applied to games like sid meier's civilization and even the much earlier reach for the stars which i believe came out in the late 80s so the game came out it was successful and so you'd figure there would be uh, there would be a sequel. Well, not right away. 1994 brought us Master of Magic, which is another game I'll have to give its due on this show. But uh, as soon as Master of Magic was complete, work began on Master of Orion 2: Battle at Antares. This is Alpha Niner calling Science Station Hermes. Alpha Niner, this is Science Station Hermes. Five by five. Roger, Hermes. All clear. Sector Gamma Delta Four. Request clearance for landing. That's Roger, Alpha Niner. You are cleared for landing. Switch to station control. Switching to station control. Sink and lock.
moving into attack position, beginning my run now. Sir, we've lost Alpha 90. Divert full power to shields. Scramble already cracked. Shields down to 80%, sir. Stay on those shields. I need full power. Shields down to 60%. 50% and dropping. Launch emergency distress beacon now. Oh, I love early 90s poor intro voice acting. Oh no, we are under attack. Launch the thing. Uh, anyways, that was the intro for Master of Orion 2. So story-wise, uh, events kind of that instigate it start long before the time in which the game is set. So long ago, kind of two extremely powerful races, the Orions and the Antarans, fought a war that devastated most of the galaxy. Uh, the Orions won, and rather than exterminate the Antarans, they imprisoned them in a pocket of a pocket dimension, or kind of like the Phantom Zone in Superman, uh, before departing the galaxy, leaving behind a very powerful robotic warship known as the Guardian to protect their homeworld, as we saw in the first game. So sometime after the game starts, the Antarans, having broken out of their prison dimension, begin to send increasingly powerful fleets against the players' colonies to destroy them rather than to invade. The only way that they can be stopped is to carry the battle to their home universe through a dimensional portal. So Master of Orion 2 was a much more complex and some might say more complete game than the original. Now, to me, the biggest change was now that stars was that uh, star systems now could contain up from zero, there could be empty star systems, which were, was impossible in the first game, from zero to five planets, which, uh, which could actually be shared between different races. This meant more than one race could colonize a single system. Uh, Marines can be sent out to capture enemy ships. Food can be shipped between colonies via freighters. Research leads to the construction of special buildings. Hero-type planetary leaders become available, giving bonuses to certain aspects of a star system. Master of Orion 2 was, uh, was effectively civilization in space, and, uh, and I'd kind of argue that most modern 4X space games, such as Endless Space, um, which, I, which I've spent a few hours with, I know there's, there's many others that are reportedly much much more complex or much deeper much better but uh you know as an example endless space borrows very heavily from master of orion and even more specifically master of orion 2 so mu 2 m-o-o master of orion mu 2 released in december uh, 1996 to favorable reviews uh though some reviewers and players commented that they preferred the simpler approach of the first game master of orion 2 really did require quite a bit of micromanagement you know, the graphics and sound were greatly improved from the first game. And, you know, really, whether you like Master of Orion 1 or 2 is really a question of taste. They're both great games. Uh, 2 just exposes many more kind of little fiddly bits than, uh, than the original, which, uh, which focused much more on ships and ship design. Right around the release of Master of Orion 2, Simtex was acquired by Microprose and, uh, and the development team was moved in-house. Now, I'm not sure if that, was, that resulted in this... But uh, Master of Orion 3 was developed by Quicksilver Software and published by Infograms in 2003. Uh, Steve Barcio was not involved as he had moved on to Retro Studios to make Nintendo games. Until 2002, Emmerich 
the game journalist, who was also apparently a game designer, was actually lead designer on uh, on Master of Orion 3. Now, Master of Orion 3 was the most ambitious project yet. More planets, more details, more of everything. However, the game wasn't very successful, as the level of detail was basically overwhelming. The interface was clunky, slow, hard to maneuver, and uh, it basically rendered the game not very fun to play. So is that the end of the Master of Orion series? The third game, not very successful, kind of fizzling out. But uh, no, apparently it is not. Well, there isn't anything in the works yet. There is some news here. So years back, Atari acquired Microprose and their IPs, including Master of Orion. Well, back in July of this year, Atari sold off quite a few of their IPs in a big fire sale. Well, there was a three-way fight for the Master of Orion rights between Wargaming, Uber Entertainment, and Stardock Software. Wargaming, creator of World of Tanks, won and now owns the rights to Master of Orion. I think they got those along with the rights to Total Annihilation. So I guess we will see what comes out of that. So where can we get Master of Orion today? Well, simple as usual. All three games are available on GOG.com. Master of Orion 1 and 2 come in a single package for $5.99, and Master of Orion 3 comes standalone for $9.99. The first two games ran flawlessly on my MacBook using GOG's Boxer-based Mac installer, which allowed me to play on the road. So I was able to play in Tromblant, and uh, and all of that works really good. I, I can only assume, and you know, based on experience, that um, the GOG PC install works equally well, or you can uh, flip it into your own DOSBox install, and, uh, and they will work just as well. Okay, a few more emails before the final verdict. Firstly, an email from Father Beast. He writes, Hello, this is Father Beast. My experience with Master of Orion begins in about 1997 when I had $20 to spend on myself all of a sudden. I decided to go to Kmart to get old video games on special. Their best deal at the time was a two-packs of CD-ROM games for $10. In the best return for monetary value purchase I have ever made, I purchased two of these packs. The first had Civilization and Colonization, and the second had XCOM UFO Defense and Master of Orion. This was my first exposure to each of these games. I note that you have covered XCOM previously on the show and are covering Master of Orion this week. I certainly look forward to a Civilization episode sometime soon, and even a Colonization episode at some dimly conceived point in the future. Anyway. Master of Orion was easy enough to get running since I already had set up an alternate boot with more lower memory available on my 386-16MHz for another game. I don't remember which. The manual on CD had a quick start section which got me going quickly and I was hooked. After playing three full games, I tackled the next section of the manual entitled Mastering Master of Orion and proceeded to do my best to get good at this game. People blame Sid Meier and Civilization for the one more turn syndrome, but I have never had a worse case of turn lock than with Master of Orion. There is always, always, always something interesting coming up within a few turns, and I keep thinking, I'll just keep playing until I get this tech, or my fleet arrives at this place, or I finish building my monster death ship, or something. I decided I was going to play a little bit before bed one night, and I had to quit finally when my alarm rang for me to get up and go to work. I had a predictably horrible day at work and banned myself from playing on work nights after that. 
Another time, I had the day off while my wife was out of town with the baby, leaving me with the two kids in elementary school. I got up at about four in the morning to get some playing in before sending the kids to school and ended up just staying on with a short break to get breakfast for the kids. I played all day, including after the kids got home and dashed off to the kitchen to get some dinner for the kids at some point. The kids put themselves to bed at some point and I kept playing. I finally finished the game at about two the next morning and dragged myself off to bed, contemplating what a loser I was. There are just so many possibilities of ways to go about playing this game. Big ships with big shields and small weapons, huge swarms of little ships, something else. There are counter strategies and counter texts to just about everything, except you sometimes don't get the text you want for something or other. Plus, the different alien races had specialties which lent themselves to different strategies. I have to quote a humorous line from one of the FAQs. Humans, a dull, boring race of semi-idiot people who have no concept of self-interest or long-term vision. Oh, they aren't that great in the game either. I still play this under DOSBox regularly. Master of Orion 2 sounded enticing, what with the multiple planets per star, more options and races, race editor, and a bigger enemy at the end, so it was a given that I would get it sometimes. But I was initially disappointed. So many things were different. A good world, instead of having a maximum population of 100, had a maximum population of 8. There was a fee for having ships, which was ridiculously huge and clearly encouraged huge ships rather than swarms, and what was the deal with these people you could hire to lead fleets or govern worlds? Eventually, I came to terms with Master of Orion 2, but with the understanding that it wasn't a real sequel, but an entirely different game along the same lines. I have heard it referred to as Civ in Space, but it would be more accurately described as Master of Magic in Space. Master of Magic is another game you should cover sometime. I still enjoy it sometimes, but it isn't as engrossing as the original. Despite the terrible reviews and internet buzz, I bought Master of Orion 3 at a closeout rate. Unfortunately, it seems that the naysayers were justified. In the one game I played, I struggled constantly with trying to figure out how to build what I wanted, or how to design ships properly, or just about everything else. When the game announced that it was over, and the winner was a race I had never even met, I quit and never went back. Perhaps there is a good game in there, but I didn't discover it. Because of Master of Orion, I have played and enjoyed many space strategy games, such as Reach for the Stars, Galactic Civilizations, and Ascendancy. The game I found that was most like the original Moo was an indie game sold on the internet called Stars! It has, a really, ba- it has really basic graphics and no sound at all, but it has really cool Moo-like gameplay, and uh, I still play it more often than I do Moo 2. It's kind of a shame that there doesn't seem to have been something like this out recently unless Sins of a Solar Empire is one I haven't looked closely enough. Anyway, long live game, and love your show, and looking forward to this episode, Father Beast. So that was the first email. And now for the second email to follow up, since the show was delayed a week, which is my fault, Father Beast sent me another email. He writes again, since there's been a delay, I suppose I could talk a bit more about this game, by which I mean the first, not two or three. I enjoyed times when I was playing as the Silicoids, and someone would offer to trade tech with me, and they offered some sort of hostile planet tech, which is useless to the Silicoids, who could automatically land on any kind of planet. I would take the tech because it jacked up my tech level and miniaturized components a bit more. When I was able to put a colony module on a medium ship instead of a large one, my expansion really took off. Another amazing memory will come about when I was expanding things and uh, expanding and things were going fine, when suddenly the other races would elect some other guy to master of the galaxy. If I accepted it, the game would be over and I would retire in disgrace. I refused to accept the decision, which meant that All the other races were were irrevocably at war with me with no hope of diplomacy ever. This would either lead to my defeat and my race being wiped out, 
or I would somehow hold out and prevail, eventually having to wipe out the rest of the races. Either way, it was always a heck of a fight. If I managed to win, I was declared tyrant for a thousand years. Oh well. Another quick memory. To keep track of my worlds, I always renamed them when colonizing. Each game had a different naming scheme, like the worlds being named after towns in a particular fantasy series. This way, I always knew if a world was one that had been originally colonized by me or the AI, which never renamed worlds. I could go on for ages, but I'll stop there for now. Looking forward to the podcast, Father Beast. Well, thank you, Father Beast. That, you know, those are those are incredible memories, incredibly detailed memories, and and you know, that's just that's that's just great. And you know, I, I will definitely cover Master Magic uh, one of these days, and it will be interesting to see how it it actually does uh, what similarities it has to Master of Orion too. So thanks for that, and uh, that'll do for the emails. And let's uh, let's get on to the big uh, the big verdict. My name is Al, and I'm Joyce, and we're, we're huge, huge Disneyland, Disneyland fans. fans. In fact, we love the Disneyland Resort so much we host a podcast dedicated to the happiest place on earth to share that passion with others. That's right. On our show, Tales from the Mouse House Disneyland podcast. We share current resort news, some tips and tricks we've learned over the years to help make your Disneyland Resort vacation the most magical experience ever. We uncover little-known and often-overlooked gems we like to call hidden treasures, and even review the attractions and places to eat that make the Disneyland Resort so much fun. And if that wasn't enough, we even share some video episodes to help keep you in that Disney magic state of mind. If you're a longtime fan of the Disneyland Resort, or you've just recently discovered the magic, this podcast is for you. You can find Tales from the Mouse House Disneyland Podcast at www.talescast.com and in iTunes. And remember, make, make it, it a, a Mickey, Mickey day. day. So, does Master of Orion hold up today? I'll give this an emphatic yes. These games, well... I guess at least the first two games, defined the space-based 4X genre. They weren't the first 4X games, but when it comes to customizing ships, managing star systems, researching, diplomacy, and all the rest in a sci-fi environment, these games are the definition. As I said, I recently spent a good chunk of time in endless space, and it is effectively a copy of Master of Orion 2 with much prettier graphics. Like their pre-4X predecessor civilization, they are insidious at the one-more-turn syndrome. I'll just wait until my colony ship gets to where it's going. I'll just wait until this research is done. Oh, now I'm in a war. I can't stop now. Okay, the war is over, but now I need to realign my production. It just, just like Father B said, it just never ends. There's always one more thing you can do. And it's just that, that, that insidious pacing that always keeps the next thing so close, but just far enough so that you have to work for it a little bit, makes these things so addictive. You know, this is one of those games where you put your head down at 7 p.m. and when you look up again at the clock, it's 3 in the morning and you're like, crap, I got to go to work tomorrow. You know, whether you like the more straightforward setup of the original game or the more complex micromanagey style of the second one, the first two games in this series are must-plays just to see how similar they are to 4X games today. Sure, newer games have shinier interfaces, better fleet management, even more fiddly micromanagement, even more fiddly diplomacy, but the concepts all came from here.
All right, so before I end things off, I need to start emptying out my Steam inventory. So uh, I'm going to start giving some games away every second episode or so. So basically, you know, once a month. So to begin, I've got a copy of Duke Nukem 3D Megaton Edition to give away to some lucky Steam user. Just drop me an email to podcast at umbcast.com with the subject line Duke3D and, uh, you know, preferably your Steam username. And I'll fire the game off to someone over the next two shows. To make things even easier, join up the Steam group. It'll make me easier to find you and all that. So email, subject Duke3D, podcastumbcast.com if you want a free copy of Duke Nukem 3D Megaton Edition. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So that is that for another one. Thanks to everyone who participated this week. I love hearing from you guys, all your stories about how you came across these games and the fun or frustrations you had with them, the people you played them with, the situations you played them with, things that it got you through, things that it stopped you from doing. I just, I, I love hearing all that stuff. That's really kind of one of the other reasons that that I really love doing this show is hearing people's memories of of the games that uh, that we all used to love and play. So next time, I will be covering a classic puzzle platformer, the 1991 Psygnosis game, Lemmings. So I am very excited for that. I know a lot of us played that, and uh, they were definitely a thing for quite a while. So as always, as I said, please send email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. The more, the merrier. I'd love, I'd love more audio comments. Thanks, Francisco, for, for yours today. It's super easy to record them. Just use your, your phone or or whatever, as long as it can play on a computer, I could play it on the podcast. Um, thanks, of course, to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. Where you can find him over at moyermultimedia.com. You can check out the show notes at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash umbcast. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow. Me personally at billybob476, twitter.com slash billybob476, that is. Uh, join the new Steam community group, steamcommunity.com slash groups slash umbcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes. Stream us live at Stitcher Radio. That is that. And I will see you next time for Lemmings here in the Upper Memory Block. Battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join the unity.